You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale Baptist Church. My name is Jeff Poteet and I get to serve here on staff as one of our pastors and we are so glad that you've chosen to join with us here live on our campus, whether you're watching us online or if you're with us live in the Cross Point Center, we're so excited about what God is doing as we seek to join God in his work of transforming lives. Now, today we are starting a brand new nine-week series called Summer on the Mount, where we, as a congregation, whether we're here, whether we're online, we're gonna be joining in with disciples and with followers uh, nearly 2,000 years later to listen in on the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, For many of us, we know it as the Sermon on the Mount, and it is Jesus's longest continuous teaching opportunity. Uh, And whenever we see this, it's found in Matthew's chapter five through seven and also in Luke chapter six. But whenever we start hearing the word Sermon on the Mount, it might be a little bit of a, a misnomer for us whenever we think about traditional sermons, because as you read it, if you've had a chance to read over it, you'll notice that it only encompasses about 111 verses, which whenever you start at the beginning and work your way through is only about a 10-minute message. And so you might be thinking that sounds a little bit more like a devotion on the mount than a sermon to me. And so you might be thinking today, this is great. (laughs) Sermons during the summer are going to get shorter? Like this is, I'm good. this is exciting for me. You will be maybe disappointed to know <laughs> that it was most likely part of a longer teaching that Jesus gave. So our sermons are gonna be just the same length each and every week. For some of you, you might be thinking, well, why are we going over the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, everybody knows that Jesus preached this. I mean, it's like the most known message in the world. Well, you would actually be a little bit surprised to know that according to Gallup, who is a pollster, uh, nearly 50% of people didn't know that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of them actually thought that it was Billy Graham's message. (laughs) And for some of you, it would be even more surprised that some people thought that it was actually preached by a guy that was mounted on a horse. They thought the Sermon on the Mount was a guy riding around preaching on his horse. So There you go. So today we are starting this series. Our goal is not to convince you that shorter sermons are better, nor is it to reassign the message of the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus. No, we believe that through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus invites us anew and afresh to know what it means to be a citizen in his holy kingdom to know what it means to be a true and faithful follower of Jesus Christ as part of his family. Because as you think about history, whether you're here in your 70, whether you're here or in your 17, generations have often said from one generation to the next, now is the time for the church to be different. Now is the time for the church to shine in our world. John Stott, who is a famous theologian, He said it just like this. He was talking about young people and where they run to false hopes rather than true hopes. He says this, the first place to which they, young people, should be able to turn is the one place they normally ignore, namely the church. For too often what they see in the church is not counterculture, but conformism. 
not a new society which embodies their ideals, but another version of the old society which they have renounced. Not life, but death. For insofar as the church is conformed to the world and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be merely two versions of the same thing, the church is contradicting its true identity. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different from anybody else. As I read that, the piercing question that I had to ask myself was, but does it? Does the statement, you are no different than anybody else, actually hurt me? Or is there some sense of relief that it brings? Like whenever I think about it, is is it a a sense of relief to say, oh, they're not gonna call me a Jesus freak. They're not gonna assume that my life is somehow different. Now, whenever your non-Christian friend looks at you, do they see a difference in your passions, in your pursuits, in the way that you approach life? Or do they look at you and say, you know, we're pretty much the same except for how you spend an hour or two on Sundays. And as we come to this scripture, we see that Jesus is inviting us to understand what it means to be part of his holy kingdom, what it means to be different in this world as it watches how we live our lives. And as we think about this invitation, Jesus is gonna be teaching us for the next nine weeks a a bottom line truth as it relates to us in his faith family. It's this, that transformed people live transformed lives. Transformed people live transformed lives. Some of you might be thinking, that's real original, Jeff. That's, uh, that's your statement. Like, pretty could have, could have seen that one coming. But this is what Jesus teaches over and over. And so we're gonna pray, and then I want you guys to meet me in Matthew chapter five this morning uh, as we begin our study on the Sermon on the Mount. Would you pray with me today? Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. We thank you that you've called us to be part of your kingdom. And we pray now, Father, that you would speak to us from your word so that we can be transformed into the image of Christ more and more. In his name we pray, amen. Would you meet me in Matthew chapter five? We'll be looking at verses one through 12 this morning. The opening verses of Matthew chapter five help us to see what Jesus is trying to teach us about being transformed. He says this, Matthew writes this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So what we notice very first here is who Jesus is actually talking to primarily. Jesus is actually, first and foremost, addressing his disciples. They have gathered around him. And what we'll see near the end of the sermon is that the crowds are listening in. But Jesus' invitation first and his message is first directed to his disciples. Now, I'm sure that you can imagine the scene if you take just a minute and think about it. Jesus is getting away from the crowds because by this time, Jesus has become an attraction. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's been turning water into wine. And, and so people are starting to be attracted to him. You know, whenever people are trending, they start to get a following. People wanna see what's gonna happen next. What's Jesus gonna do next? And, and how can we be part of what he is going to do? So there are his disciples. They're gathering near him. There are some from the crowd that are a little bit 
farther off with anticipation, waiting. What's Jesus going to say next? What's he going to say as he is sitting here on the mountain trying to describe to us what it means to be a kingdom person? And Jesus begins to teach them. These are the words that come out of Jesus's mouth. Blessed are thee. Blessed are thee. I'm sure that the disciples were excited. You know, good start, Jesus. Blessing. Who doesn't want to be blessed? Who doesn't want to know what it means to have God's favor resting upon them? Who doesn't want to be approved and accepted by God? Who doesn't want to have an internal disposition of joy no matter what the circumstances are? Who doesn't want to be blessed? Jesus talks to them. Maybe his disciples were expecting Jesus to say, blessed are the go-getters. Blessed are the self-starters. Blessed are the do-anything-it-takes kind of people because that's them. They've left everything to follow this startup venture that Jesus has been a part of. They are, they are on the team. They say, okay, Jesus, tell us exactly who we are. Give us a pat on the back for what we have done. And when Jesus begins to teach them, he turns their world absolutely upside down. This is what Jesus continues in that statement. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rather than beginning with all the things that the kingdom of God was going to do, how it was going to move in the world, he starts with the kind of people kingdom citizens are going to be. He doesn't start with their activities. He starts with their character. He doesn't say, here's a list of rules and do's and don'ts that you need to follow to be part of my kingdom. He says, here's the kind of person that's going to be in my kingdom already. So he's not saying, here's all the things you have to do to work your way into the kingdom. Here's the way the kingdom of God works its way out in your life. Here's what it looks like to be transformed from the inside out. Why is this? It's because transformed people live transformed lives. It begins with who we are, not what we do. You see, that's what Christianity is about. It's not about doing, it's about being. It's about who we are. You see, you must be a Christian before you can act like a Christian. You must have a transformed nature before you can begin to act like a believer. You see, the gospel puts greater weight on our attitude than it does on our actions. Jesus will certainly deal with our actions, what it means to live in light of the gospel. But he begins first with our character. And far too often, churches get this flipped around. Churches say, you gotta do more to be a better Christian. Jesus is saying, no, you gotta be different to be a faithful Christian. And he challenges us each and every day because that formula, do more, try harder, only leaves us discouraged. When we look at the, the mountainous inability that we have, this is where Jesus begins with us in the Beatitudes. So in verses three through 12, Jesus is going to show us three transformations that God does in our lives that characterize those who are part of his holy kingdom. I'm gonna go ahead and give those to you right here up front so you know where we're going. We'll see that Jesus talks about the fact that we have to have a transformed root of our lives. We have to have a transformed pursuit in our lives. And ultimately we have to have transformed fruit in our lives. We'll see him uh, begin with the transformed root, the transformed root. That is, how does Jesus change our identity? How does he change who we are at the core? How does he change 
that part of us from which everything else begins to grow and blossom. We go back to verse three, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are like those that the Greek, Greeks would say are truly poor. Those are people who were absolutely destitute of any available resources. They had nothing, absolutely nothing. They were oftentimes reduced to begging and pleading with people to give them all that they needed. Now, Jesus isn't saying, you go be poor and that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. Because if that was the case, we'd all just sell all of our stuff and have an assurance that we were going to be part of God's kingdom. He's not talking about our, our physical poverty. No, he's talking about a spiritual poverty, a poverty of our soul that says we have absolutely nothing to bring to God. We have no spiritual assets to bring to God for him to approve us. We have nothing to bring to him by which he would say, you're in. We are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. This disposition will be something like the tax collector in Luke's gospel. It says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we come before a holy God, we have nothing in our hands to bring. We don't, we don't have any good works that we could offer him that he would be proud of. Our education, our wealth, our status, our good works are all nothing in his sight. Those who are truly blessed, Jesus is saying, are those who have seen their own spiritual bankruptcy before God. And they come to him with grateful hands and grateful hearts, not trying to earn their way to God, not trying to work their way to God. They see that there's nothing that they can do except for fall before him and ask for his grace and his mercy to save them from their sin. This is what Jesus is helping us to see about those that are members of his kingdom. Those who are citizens of his holy kingdom are those who are spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. And as we go through these beatitudes, what we'll notice is they begin to build on each other. They are progressive in nature. So one will build on the next. So let's see what Jesus says in this next beatitude. He says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now you know that Jesus is concerned about our sadnesses. He's concerned about the things that make us weep and cry. He is there to console us, to comfort us, to encourage us. But this word that Jesus is using, this picture that Jesus is painting goes far beyond our natural sorrows. You see, even the word he uses is the, is the deepest kind of grief that we can feel. Usually it was reserved for weeping and, and being sorrowful over the loss of a loved one. But Jesus is picture, his point is something that goes even beyond the sorrow that we feel whenever we lose someone that we love. Jesus is talking about a godly sorrow and mourning over our sin. He's talking about what it means to mourn whenever we offend a holy God. And we see this picture in 2 Corinthians where the apostle Paul writes this, for godly grief, sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Now, Paul is painting a picture there of two kinds of sorrow, a, a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. The difference between the two is this. 
Worldly sorrow is that I'm sorry that I got caught. You know that feeling where you did something and, oh, you got, you got ratted out. You got found out. And so you feel kind of bad about it. But godly sorrow is something that God does within us where maybe even nobody knows that we've done it. But the sorrow that God works in our hearts is because we've offended him, not because we got caught in our sin. This is the kind of sorrow that Jesus says he brings comfort in the midst of that. Because not only do we sorrow over our sin, whenever we understand our sin, we know that there's hope in the midst of it. That we can look to Jesus and be comforted because of what he's accomplished for us on the cross. So our sorrow can turn to comfort. As these beatitudes progress, we see how they continue to go. Those who are poor in spirit will mourn for their sin. They see themselves before a holy God and they will recognize their place and they will mourn over their sin. But it doesn't end there. Jesus tells us, from there, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. For most of us, for many of us, we may think that meek equals weak. It might seem like something that is uh, it's off-putting to us. Like meek sounds bad, but Jesus turns what the world thinks as a vice into a virtue. He turns what people think is terrible into something that we should treasure in our own lives. You see, meekness is not being timid or spineless, unassertive, easily dominated. It doesn't even mean naturally nice. No, meekness is strength under control. This is what Jesus wants us to understand with the words that he uses because the word that he uses was oftentimes used whenever it related to somebody taking a, a wild stallion or a wild elephant or a wild ox and breaking that, that animal to be useful to its master. So whenever we think about this word, Jesus isn't saying that they became less than what they were. They still had their strength. They still had their spirit, but now they were useful for the king. They were useful for their master. Whenever we think about the culture that Jesus was in, to the non-believer, meekness sounded condescending. It sounded like you were less than someone. But for the believer, as they heard what Jesus was saying, their picture was of submission to a greater authority, of submission to a king. And Jesus helps us to see that those who are part of his kingdom are submitting their lives to the word of God and to God's providence. They are useful now in the king's kingdom because they have submitted their will to the will of the father. They've submitted their pursuits and their passions to the will of a greater authority. Jesus helps us to see this, that as believers in his kingdom, we are transformed first at our very core. We are transformed first at our very root. And Jesus wants us to see a, a contrast he says, if you go on in your self-willed, sin-loving and rejoicing ways, rebel living, there is no kingdom, there is no comfort, there is no inheritance for you. There is no true life. There is no true blessing. Though that's what our world tells us is the place to find life, Jesus says, no. Life is found in knowing who I am before a holy God, knowing who I am in relation to him. And, and knowing who I am in that relationship leads me to be sorrowful whenever I offend that God. It leads me to love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates. It leads me to submit my life and my will to his will, 
each and every day. This is what it means to be part of his kingdom. This is what it means to be transformed at our root. But this transformation is just the beginning of how God transforms us. The next transformation that we see in the Beatitudes is what we call a transformed pursuit, a transformed pursuit. Notice what Jesus says in verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. When Jesus changes a person, he changes their pursuits. He changes what gives them joy and excitement each and every day. And I can't think of a more vivid word picture than hungering, thirsting, and satisfaction. The reality is that none of us want to be hungry. None of us want to be thirsty. We know that in some way, we know in some way that gnawing feeling of wanting our next meal, that, that lingering need for being satisfied, that hope for a drink of water. And Jesus takes this physical reality that we feel so regularly and he turns it into a spiritual truth because he knows that no one wants to be empty. Nobody wants to go on longing for something that they know that they need. And Jesus says, the world's gonna tell you to pursue it in something other than me. But the only true source of satisfaction is knowing Christ. Jesus reminds us that the pursuit of stuff will not satisfy us. The pursuit even of happiness will not satisfy us because there will always be something that might make us a little bit more happy. Jesus is saying that those pursuits will only leave us longing for more satisfaction. He says, I've got something. I know a place where there is true satisfaction. He identifies for us the one who is truly satisfied. And that's the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Righteousness being defined as the thing that pleases God. Pursuing a life that is consistent with God's law in every way, in thought, in action, in deed, this will truly bring us satisfaction. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that when people see a kingdom citizen, they should see someone pursuing holiness. They should see someone pursuing Christ. And we know that this might not be always intentional in our lives, but it is always noticeable. People see us growing to be more like Jesus each and every day, whether it's in the way that we speak, whether it's in the way that we use our gifts, whether it's in the way that we pursue our lives and the trajectory of the things that we want to do. We find ourselves strangely loving things that we used to not love as much, whether it's people, whether it's the church, whether it's the word of God. We start to love things that we didn't used to love. I heard a story of a young man who was being interviewed for membership at a church. He was uh, relatively new, newly converted from the story. And they said that he was a pretty outspoken kid. So he, he, was, he wasn't afraid to tell people what he thought. And he, he's sitting down with the pastor to talk to them about membership. And he says, you know, something strange has happened to you guys since I started coming here. Whenever I came here first and the pastor was sitting, listen to him. So when I first came here, the sermons, well, they were just kind of boring. There really wasn't much to them. And, and the songs that we were singing, they were just kind of old and traditional and there really wasn't much to them. And the prayers, oh my goodness. The prayers were so long. But now, as I hear the word, it's challenging me and transforming me. 
as I hear the songs, I, can't, I just can't wait to sing these great songs of the faith and the prayers. I just love to hear people pray and ask God to do great works in their lives. You know, I don't know what happened to you guys. You know, the reality is that it wasn't something that happened to the church. It was something that happened to the young man. Whereas before the things of God weren't appetizing to him, weren't appealing to him. Now, because God had transformed his heart, the things that used to be dull and dry and boring and, and off-putting were now the things that he looked forward to. You know something into that to be true in your own life if you're a follower of Christ. There was a time in your life that the things of God were the last things on your mind. You could care less about his word. You could care less about his people. You could care less about singing to him. But then when he transformed your life, you began to want to spend time in his word. You began to want to gather with his people. You began to want to sing and thank him for who he was and what he had done. Your hungers and your thirsts had changed. Your desires were now new. Your ambitions were now different. Your passions have been changed by the work of God within your life. The apostle Paul tells us so much in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is what Jesus says about our pursuits. They are new and different. They're focused on righteousness. And the result of this pursuit, sometimes people think, well, it just turns people into self-righteous people. They become smug and they become hard to get along with and difficult, but citizens in Christ's kingdom who have been transformed, live transformed lives. And so this is not the case as Jesus tells us that we will begin to bear in our lives transformed fruit. As we have a transformed root, as our pursuits are transformed, then the fruit of our lives will be transformed. Notice what Jesus says in verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now we've said that Jesus was turning their understanding of blessing upside down. You might read this and think, well, mercy seems like a good thing. I don't know why anybody would be really confused about showing mercy, but for the religious leaders of that day, showing mercy was despised. There was a strict adherence to the Mosaic law and anyone who deviated, there was very little grace or mercy shown. For the Romans, even more so, grace uh, mercy was seen as a vice. It wasn't seen as something that was good. It was a sign of weakness. It was something that they despised in their culture. No one would want to be known as merciful. They would not want to be known in that way. But in Jesus's kingdom, where our actions and our attitudes flow from a new and transformed life, mercy is now seen as a great gift. Mercy is seen as a blessing. Mercy is seen as a pursuit and a fruit that we want to be identified by. Jesus's citizens are not to be identified as vengeful, exacting, bitter kinds of people, unwilling to forgive in the midst of being offended. No, Jesus's kingdom, people are to be freely forgiving because they have been freely forgiven. They understand what it means to have been shown mercy by God. And so they are willing to forgive even in the midst of challenging situations. They don't overlook the suffering of others. They wanna be compassionate and loving. They wanna show the world what they have experienced by the hand of a loving and good father. 
So they are people who are ready and willing to show mercy at every turn. Not only does their life bear the fruit of mercy, they see a different fruit in relation to their devotion. Notice what Jesus says in verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The basic meaning of this picture of purity is, to make it, is by making it pure from cleansing from dirt or grime or filth. So Jesus is helping us to see when we apply that to our hearts. It's a picture of our hearts being purified to have a singular devotion, to be pure in their pursuit, to be pure in the direction that they are going. There's an additional meaning that deals with it is relation to sincerity, honesty, integrity. So if we had to frame it in kind of one sentence, the pure in heart is a person who has a single-minded devotion to Christ who lives that out in a sincere way. They're not hypocritical. They don't say, I'm following Jesus, and then their lives look something completely different. They are single-minded in their devotion, and their life bears that out on a regular basis. The Apostle Paul says like this in Titus chapter two. He talks about what Jesus came to accomplish. Jesus came to give himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He transforms us by redeeming us, by bringing us into his family, by bringing us into his kingdom and giving us a new priority in life. The pure in heart are those whose perspective on life has become defined by one driving passion. It's how do I glorify God today? How do I glorify Christ today? How does my life continue in a pursuit and a devotion for him today? So we have changed perspective on mercy, a new perspective on devotion, but we also see another fruit seen in verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, these disciples would have been shocked. You think about what they were expecting. They were expecting a Messiah to come and to obliterate all oppressors. They were expecting someone to come to get them out from under the rule of the Romans. They were, they were really looking for a fight. They were looking for a, a conflict on a, a grand proportion where they were going to ultimately be the victors. They didn't want to be peaceful people. They wanted to dominate the Roman government. They wanted to overthrow them so that they could live their lives the way that they desired. But Jesus teaches us that his kingdom is not marked by strife, by conflict, but it's marked by peace. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians again. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So what Jesus is continuing to do is helping us to see that those who are in his kingdom know what it means to be reconciled. That is, knowing what it means for the conflict to cease between two parties. In this case, the 2 Corinthians 5 case, it's between God and between us. Jesus has reconciled us. Because of who he is and what he's done, he has made peace between us and God so that we can be reconciled or we can have no conflict or we can be at peace with a holy God. He says, because you know what this is like experientially, now you have the responsibility 
for that to be born out in your lives, for you to be a peacemaker, not to be someone who is marked by strife or conflict, but someone who is seeking to accomplish peace in your particular area. We are working for harmony. We're working for, for growth in being peacemakers, not strife, not conflict. This last fruit though that Jesus leads us to is found in verses 10 through 12. And I will just say, before we get to these, the first, the first Beatitudes, I think that we can all like, yeah, okay, I'm good with those. These are challenging though. I found challenge even as I wrestled with them these last few weeks. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now we read that the others are mercy and peace, devotion. Then Jesus deals with persecution. He says, what, what kind of transformed fruit does a persecuted person bear? And the answer is the kind of fruit that a persecuted person bears is joy. It's joy in the midst of persecution. Now we have to understand that Jesus isn't talking about persecution because of our personalities. He's not talking about people not liking us because we have some idiosyncrasies. He's talking about people who are against us because of Jesus. People who are opposed to us because of our pursuit of righteousness. People who hate us and attack us because we are part of Christ's kingdom. You see, persecution is really the clash between two separate, distinct, irreconcilable systems of the world, pursuits of the world, the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the world and the countercultural nature of Christ's kingdom will bring it into conflict with the world. It's inevitable. The kingdom of Christ will bring you into conflict with the nature of the kingdom of this world. And Jesus says, when it does, we're to rejoice. We're to be glad in the midst of that because his kingdom citizens respond differently than the world does. We don't respond by retaliating. We don't respond by sulking. We don't respond by grinning and bearing it and just getting through it. We respond by rejoicing. We respond by rejoicing the fact that even in the midst of persecution and challenge, we can never lose the inheritance that Christ has gained for us. We rejoice in the midst of suffering because it puts us in a long line of people who have been faithful before us, who have gone and have suffered and have counted it all joy in the midst of those trials. We see it even in the first century church in Acts chapter five. Those first believers they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I dare to say that if, if this is the kind of fruit that is born in our lives, it shows even more clearly 
that transformed people live transformed lives. The way that we live our lives is based on the work that Christ has done in our hearts. And so as we walk through our days, the question that Jesus wants us to to ask as it relates to these first 12 verses is this question. Is that reflected in my life? Is that what my life looks like? Whenever I look at my life, do I see evidence of this kind of transformation? Do I see that in my life, I see God as a great God and I see myself as empty handed before him? Am I grateful to him because of his grace and his mercy that's been poured out in my life because of Jesus? When I sin, do I mourn for that? Does it grieve me that I have offended God? And then do I look to Christ for comfort in the midst of my grieving? Do I progressively grow in my love of submitting my will to the will of the Father? Do I see myself submitting to my own will less and his will more? And then whenever I see in myself a failure to do that, do I see myself as empty-handed before a holy God, mourning over my sin and then looking to Christ for comfort? Is this the pattern of my life? Does my life look like a transformed life? Whenever I, whenever I live my life, am I, tra- am I diving into his word for transformation? Am I going to him regularly in prayer, thanking him for who he is and what he's done? Do I see a growing love to forgive and to relieve suffering insofar as I can? Am I marked more and more by being a person that is a peacemaker or am I seeing myself being more and more involved in conflicts interpersonally? Is my life different enough that where people say there's something different about you? Is there conflict that I have with the world? Or is the world kind of brought me in and said, oh, you're just kind of like us. These are the questions that Jesus wants to draw to our attention as we look through the Beatitudes and through the Sermon on the Mount. Why does he want us to think about this? Why does he want us to reflect on this? Again, it's because transformed people live transformed lives. And as we come to the conclusion of our our message today, I want us to consider how God is transforming our lives. You personally, as you're here this morning, we're gonna sing here in just a few minutes after I pray. But I want us to consider, as we think about that, as we think about what God is doing in our lives and if this is true of us, I want us to consider in light of Psalm 139. So we're gonna be praying here in a moment. I'd encourage you to, to pray through this here just a moment with us. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Why do I say, let's pray through this together this morning as we close our time? One, because my assumption is that there are some of you here that you hear that list of Beatitudes. You hear what it looks like to be a transformed person in Christ's kingdom. You hear that invitation and you say, well, that's just not my life. Maybe when I look at my life, I don't see those things present. So as you pray this, as we consider this, the invitation there is to say, God, I want to I be different. I do want those things to be true. And, and this is a, an opportunity to ask God to begin that work of transformation in your heart to make those things that you don't consider good to become good because really the Beatitudes point us to Jesus. 
Jesus is the embodiment and the fulfillment of all the things that he calls his kingdom citizens to be. He is a merciful high priest. He was singularly devoted to the Father. He's a person who is called the Prince of Peace. And Jesus has fulfilled all of these realities for us. For those who had put our faith in him, these are accomplished in us as well. And so whenever the Father looks at us, he sees the perfection of the Son. So today you may say, these are not true of me. Asking the God, asking the Father to search our hearts, lead us in the way everlasting is an invitation for God to do a great work in us. If you're here today and you say, no, this, I see these things in my life. Maybe not to the extent that I want them to be there, but I see them. I see myself empty-handed before God. I see myself mourning over sin, but I want God to do a greater work in me. This is an opportunity to respond asking him to do that work even more fully in you as well. So this morning as Matt and the team come out to lead us in this new song, I wanna invite you to pray this prayer along with me. Then whatever you feel the Lord leading you to do, whether it's to come and talk to me about surrendering your life to the Lord and and what that looks like, I'd love to talk with you about that. For you to come here before the the, the podium or the platform here and just pray and ask God to do a, a renewal in your heart that you're gonna be different in this summer and for the rest of your days, this is open for you. If you just wanna sit quietly and pray, that's what the Lord leads you to do. I'd encourage you to do that. As we pray, I invite you to come as the Lord leads you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray even now that you would search our hearts. Lord, that you would would know our thoughts, that you do know our thoughts and that in this time that you would lead us in the direction that you would desire for us to go. See if there's any grievous way in us. Convict us of our sin. Bring to our attention your word. Bring to our remembrance even this morning Christ and what he's accomplished for us so that we don't leave here just guilt-ridden because we are not exactly what these beatitudes say. We haven't progressed linearly, but we are seeing ourselves grow. Lord, I pray that you would bring encouragement and comfort to us as we consider Christ. Pray that you would lead us to him that we are satisfied even this day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.